Last Sunday, uh, we looked at some of the advantages the disciples gained through Jesus' ascension. The Holy Spirit came down and became the disciples' helper, and uh, the divine ministerial offices of prophet, priest, and king were assumed by our Lord. That is totally advantageous. Um, And not only for those disciples back 2,000 years ago, but for every disciple since. And so those were the advantages we looked at. Of course, we fleshed that out quite a bit. So if you didn't get a chance to be here last Sunday or listen to that sermon, I'd go back and listen to it. I'm pretty sure God will use it to minister to you. In the next section, verses 8 through 15, Jesus begins to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't say that he describes it in in all of its detail. He simply points out several things that the Holy Spirit does. So, So we don't want to think of, well, the entire body of work that the Holy Spirit does is represented in the next handful of verses. That's not true. He basically identifies three things in particular that the Holy Spirit does. Now, because of time, we will only have uh, be able to look at one of those things today, and Lord willing, we'll look at the other two next week. So please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. Our focus will be on uh, verses 8 through 11. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, part 1. I'd like to pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Father, we... Uh, Just ask that you calm our hearts now and um, help to remove any distractions that we have and uh, help us to focus now on on your holy word. And um, I believe the way that you'll help us do that will be through the the very Holy Spirit that we're going to be talking about today. And so um, we ask that he would help us focus. He would open our minds and hearts to the truth. And... um, uh, we know that without his aid, without his help, um, this will be really nothing more than a lecture. And uh, I haven't come here to uh, preach a lecture, and I don't think anyone here has come to be lectured. Uh, so we pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would do his profound supernatural work today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do the one thing that we're going to focus on primarily, and that is that he would convict he would convict us in, in, in several areas. And so, um, and not just for the simple purpose of convicting, but for leading us to Jesus. And so, um, help us to focus on that theme today and to learn what that means and what it looks like. Be glorified and honored in this place as we uh, attempt to sing to you as our slides don't work, but as we do sing to you and as um, we pray, as we fellowship as we celebrate uh, communion together in just a a few short moments as we uh, learn the Word of God together. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, Man, yeah, we are so thankful for this opportunity that we have each week to do this so freely without any resistance or anyone trying to stop us from doing it. I pray that we don't take this for granted. Um, Thank you again. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin. Number one. Number one, this is the first thing that we see in the text that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, and that is represented in verses 8 through 11, our entire text. I'm going to read the text out loud. Be ready to follow along. 
Jesus continues by saying to them, and when he comes, he's speaking of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the helper. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in verse 9, he begins to describe what that looks like. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. And verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So this is the the very next thing Jesus says to his disciples as they're walking toward Gethsemane on that uh, night that he's arrested, uh, the day before his... his, um, his death on the cross, and he, he says this to them. He's really wanting them to listen and wanting them to pay attention, wanting them to understand some of the things that the Holy Spirit will do. And, and he's already described the work of the Holy Spirit in previous sections, primarily his ministry to them. And he will even get back into that a little bit in the next section. But here he's talking about what the Holy Spirit's going to do as a whole and primarily to the world. This is the work of the Holy Spirit toward the world, okay? So he's not really talking about them. He's been telling them what the Holy Spirit will do for them, but now he's saying, look, after I go, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to convict the world in these areas. The Greek root word for convict is alangho, and it, it it's sometimes translated in the New Testament. It doesn't appear a lot, a handful of times. But when you see it, sometimes it's translated into English as reprove. Um, and that uh, to reprove would be kind of like to correct or reproach, to point something out to somebody about them. You know, look, you've got this issue. Here's something that's going on you need to be mindful of. Or sometimes it's even translated in English as expose, like to expose error. And But here in our text, it's translated into English as convict, which I think is probably the absolute best word the translators of the ESV could find and and plug into there, the best English word. I think that that really does capture what Jesus is saying here. Here's a a few definitions of of what's represented here. Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary defines This word convict as the act of convincing a person of error. The act of convincing a person of error. And the launida, which is the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, defines it as, this is what convict means, to state that someone has done wrong with the implication that there is adequate proof for such wrongdoing. And then my personal favorite definition comes from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It defines the word convict as to show someone his sin and summon him to repentance. I like that one the best. Uh, And of course, I think there's a, a, really, you could probably describe the word convict here as all three playing out at the same time. All three definitions are good, and I think they, they all apply here, but my favorite is number three. And so when I'm reading this and I'm thinking he's going to convict the world, what is actually intended when we see the word world? Because by inference here, the inference I draw is that he's going to literally come and convict the entire world, everyone. Is that what is meant here? Well, if you 
If you know the Greek language, you know the word for world is usually cosmos. We get our word cosmos from it. And it, it has various um, definitions. It can refer to the world in terms of planet. It can refer to all of the people of the world in a sense. And it can refer to just a general, generic, the people of the world. And here, it seems to carry with it that meaning. It's When you see world, it is basically what's being said here. He's going to come and convict the people of the world. That's what is meant. Not necessarily every literal person, but the people of the world is what is in mind here. And so, now, it is possible that this particular facet of the Holy Spirit's work is universal, meaning that it goes out to every literal person. It is, it is possible that, that uh, this can be interpreted that way if you want to go that way, and that seems to be MacArthur's view of it, which is surprising. Um, but I, I think that the best way to look at it is even if the Holy Spirit literally does come and convict every literal person, man, woman, and child, I mean, obviously, in his timing, according to the way that he does it, if he does that, we need to understand a basic fundamental biblical truth, and that would be this, that, that only those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit as well, only those who have been caused to be born again are actually going to act upon that conviction rightly and, and follow through with faith and repentance. Okay? So it, it is very possible that the, the way the Spirit comes and performs this facet of His work, that it goes out to all. But we know for a fact that not all are going to respond positively to this conviction. And we have so many biblical examples to, to, that actually show us where the Holy Spirit begins to convict somebody and they do the opposite of what should be done. I think one of the great examples would be Pharaoh, where God displays his awesome sovereign power through miracles. And the Holy Spirit, you can see, you can tell the Holy Spirit that they're convicting him. But what does he do every time he sees a, a miraculous display that blows away his circus performer's displays? What does he do? Does he actually follow through with the conviction and, and repent and believe and let the Israelites go and all that? No, he hardens his heart over and over and over. So, so what I see there is I see the Holy Spirit actually working to convict somebody, but I see somebody responding negatively in, in, in that scenario, and they are hardening their heart against that conviction. And I think that, so I, I think it, it can be a universal kind of ministry, but I know for a fact it only really takes seed in those who have been regenerated. And some would argue, no, he only seeks to convict the elect. Well, that may be. That could be as well. Um, I was talking about this with my, my wife, and she said, what would be the purpose in trying to convict people whom you know are never going to be saved? Well, that's a fairly logical point, but I could probably say the same thing. Why preach the gospel to everyone and just try to find the elect and preach it to them? Well, no, we just preach the gospel to everyone, and we don't know who the elect is. Now, the Spirit does know who the elect is. So it's very debatable whether the Spirit comes to convict all, and more particularly, those whom God predestined to salvation, I think that he convicts all. I think he does. I think he, he seeks to do that while totally knowing who is going to believe and who is not going to believe. 
and actually regenerating and then convicting and then faith and repentance fall. I think that's the way that it works. Uh, But I'm trying desperately not to squeeze what the Word of God here says through my theological framework because it's important to interpret Scripture with Scripture according to Scripture, not because my Reformed theology says he can't convict anyone else. It's only going to be the elect. So you got to be careful there. I think he comes down and I think he convicts many and, and people who are not going to be saved. I do. And there's a human responsibility aspect there that we need to make sure that we affirm. But in any case, I think it, I think it refers to the world, refers to the people of this world. And this is a, a ministry that he comes down and does. And it, it could possibly be kind of universal in its scope, but only applicable, truly applicable to those whom he also regenerates. We know that those who are not regenerated respond to conviction in a number of ways, right? Like maybe like the seed parable in Matthew 13, right? They have this kind of, boy, they sense there's wrong in their life and there's sin in their life and and that little bit of conviction at some point gets kind of snatched away by the evil one. Uh, or it gets kind of drowned out by the cares of this world or by some kind of struggle or difficulty. I know that that particular parable applies to how people respond to the Word of God, but I think conviction, you can parallel it to that. But we know that those who are not regenerated, if they do respond, in a sense, positively to this conviction that they're experiencing, it's only temporal and it's not going to last. And then obviously you have the other scenario that I already identified, and that's of Pharaoh, that some people hear the word of God preached and they, they begin to realize they're wrong. They begin to realize they're in sin and yet they begin to harden their heart. They say, well, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I really don't need to do this. I really don't need to do that. I really don't need to repent of anything because I'm generally speaking a good person. Um, I don't know if, if, uh, if many of you were, were tracking with the Trump campaign back in 16, but he was uh, at some kind of a family convention deal and he was interviewed and he was asked a, a very, very pertinent and good question uh, from somebody in the audience. And the question was, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And Trump says, well, I'm a very religious man. I, I'm a Protestant. I'm a Presby, a Presbyterian, blah, 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 blah. And basically did what most politicians do, and that's duck the question. And then the commentator came back around and asked it again, and then Trump just flat out said, no, I I don't know why I would need to do that. I just try to do the right thing. Well, that's a wrong response. I don't care who you are. Yeah, you need the forgiveness of God. And, And some people will sense that in a moment where they're hearing the gospel or whatever, and they will begin to rationalize, and they will begin to harden their heart and say, I really don't need to ask him for forgiveness because I'm actually a pretty decent guy. I give to charity. I do these sorts of things. And so those are kind of the negative responses by those who are unregenerate. Things just won't hold or last with them. So that's conviction, right? Jesus says, man, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to convict the world, and I think it's a broad term that includes. Um, it, it it just it kind of represents the whole world that he does that in people's lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them respond positive because we know they don't. 
Now, Jesus doesn't just say that the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the world. He says he's going to do it in three ways, in three areas. First, he will convict the world concerning sin. And, and this, is, this is not, you know, uh, the idea here of the Holy Spirit coming to convict uh, Sam who looks at, you know, online pornography. This is not the idea that the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict Sally because she, she, you know, she steals items at her work. It doesn't carry with that a general sense of sin. There is a particular sin in mind here that Jesus has in his mind here, and he clearly states it, and it is the sin of unbelief. Verse 9, what does he say? Because they do not believe in me. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit cannot convict in other departments, so to speak. But Jesus is specifically saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, reference to the day of Pentecost, after I've ascended back into heaven, when I send him, when he comes, he's going to have a great ministry with you, but he's going to have a ministry to this world. And part of his ministry to this world is going to be to convict people on the sin of unbelief. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, here's what's astounding about this. How often do we think of unbelief as a sin? Paquito. Never. Do we? No, we think of murder. We think of adultery. We think of stealing. We think of the Ten Commandments, violating those things. Uh, We think of kicking the dog. You know, unfortunately, I'm a huge sinner on that because she's just dumb sometimes. It doesn't do what she needs to do, and I just want to give her a little right kick. I'm kidding, I don't kick my dog. I try to, but I stop myself. But we, we, we always think of other sins. And in particular, we're guilty of thinking of other people's sins more so than we think of our own, don't we? But how often do we think of unbelief as a sin? Now, over the years as I've been studying the Word, I've, I've been able to do that. But I have to tell you, early on, I didn't really think of it as a sin. I thought of the other things that are just kind of plain to the, you know, to the eye that are sinful. Murder and stealing and those kinds of things. We don't entertain the idea of unbelief as being a sin, but I'll tell you this right now. You know what the Bible does? The Bible defines it as the worst sin of all. It is the worst sin of all. It is. It is. And I tell you, sometimes in our evangelism, we're so overly concerned about what this person's doing and that person's doing. We're not really concerned about the fact that they're not believing, which is a far more offensive sin to God than anything else. Because think about it. What is unbelief? It is a rejection of his existence and his plain truthfulness. Unbelief is cosmic treason. Adultery is a sin. It's a sexual sin. Lying is a sin. These things are sins, undoubtedly. They're sins. But unbelief is a unique sin. And and I think think it is the chief sin in Scripture. I think it is is the one that the Bible kind of exalts above, above all others. If a person continues in the sin of unbelief unto death they end up dying in all of their sins. That's like a gateway sin that thrusts a person into dying into all their sins and being punished for all their sins, especially the sin of unbelief. 
Jesus 8.24 said, you do not believe in me, therefore you will die in your sins. Harry Ironside wrote, unbelief is the great, outstanding, damning sin, which, if not repented of, is going to sink men to the depths of perdition for all eternity. People go to hell because of unbelief. That is the chief sin that puts them there. I like what Spurgeon said. He put it like this. He said, and this is, this is just phenomenal because only Spurgeon, the guy is just amazing. He says, even if a man had no other sin whatsoever, it is quite sufficient to condemn him forever that he neglects his God and turns away from his Savior for unbelief is an act of high treason against the divine majesty, plucking at the crown jewel of Jehovah's truthfulness. Mm. Unbelief is a sin. In fact, in the, in, in the Gospels, Jesus alludes to it as the unpardonable sin, a, a kind of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit comes to reveal Christ and, 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 and to state that the Holy Spirit does something other than that and to attribute evil to him or what have you or to flat out reject his testimony about Christ and that's his job is to testify to Christ. It is blasphemy against him. And Jesus plainly calls it the unpardonable sin. It is the sin that cannot be forgiven. Does that mean that if you once unbelieved and now believe you can't be Forgiven for your past unbelief? Of course not. It just means that once you breathe your last breath, there's, you're just damned. There's, there's absolutely no going back, and you will die in all your sins. It really is the chief of sins, unbelief is. And it really is the cause of all the trouble throughout the Gospels. All of the resistance against Jesus, all of the persecution, all of the threats, all of that... Unbelief is behind all of that against Christ. It's unbelief that drives all of it. So the Holy Spirit will come, right? And he will convict people of the sin of unbelief. He will make them aware of the fact that they do not believe in Jesus Christ, that they are rejectors of Jesus Christ. Now, Again, we need to be careful not to reduce this facet of the Holy Spirit's work to a singular moment or singular issue such as unbelief. In other words, we don't want to reduce down the work of the Holy Spirit in conviction to just unbelief or just to a singular moment in a person's life where they realize they, they don't believe. He convicts whom he indwells. He convicts whom he has regenerated and whom he indwells, does he not convict his people of their sin? Yeah, he does. He certainly convicts me, but I'll tell you, at times, at times I just disregard him, and I, I kind of harden my heart toward his gentle, you know, gentle instruction. So, so we don't want to think of the Holy Spirit coming and just and just convicting in this manner, the Holy Spirit comes, and when he takes up residency in one of the elect, he regenerates, he convicts them of their unbelief and all that, they become a believer and all that, but he continues 
to convict them throughout the duration of their life on sin. This is what he does. It's an active, ongoing ministry in the people of God. It's not a one-time thing. Well, sadly for some, I suppose it could be a one-time thing. And they just harden their hearts and that's it. And that was the only opportunity by God's providential grace that he gives. He convicts us when we sin. But the great question that follows that massive truth is how do we respond to him when he does this in us? Do we rationalize ourselves? Well, I, uh, you know, I gave a pretty good offering on Sunday. What's that have to do with the fact that you're looking at stuff on your computer you shouldn't be looking at? It has nothing to do with that. What are you, Catholic? You think you can buy your way out of this? You can't. How do we respond when we sense his correcting grace? How do we respond? Hopefully with contrition and submission, right? Hopefully with godly sorrow. I, I think sadly, one of, the, one of the dangers for us is that, yeah, that, that, that is how we respond with, with contrition and, and maybe godly sorrow and, and submission and repentance when it's a big sin, but how do we deal with the smaller ones that we commit pretty consistently? Like, you know, the things that we, we say on a regular basis that we shouldn't be saying or those thoughts or some of those behavioral patterns. Those things tend to get just swept under the rug, or we really don't pay attention to those things, right? Boy, when we, when we do something big like King David, right, and we get called out, we have, this, we have this, you know, mountaintop experience where we have all this contrition and brokenness and all that. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But what about the work of the Holy Spirit in the small things? How do we respond to that? How do I respond to that? Sometimes with contrition and sometimes I just say, well, I'm sorry I did that, Lord. Now, thanks for this food. Amen. I mean, think about it. How do we respond to his correcting grace? Well, what we're called to do and what we're empowered to do through the Holy Spirit's power is be contrite and repentive and confessional. That's what we're called to do. And we need to remember, we need to remember that it's not just those big sins that grieve the Spirit. Every sin grieves the Spirit. Every sin. Ephesians 4.30. Every sin grieves Him. Even when we embellish on our stories, guilty, it all grieves Him. And what do we want to do? Go around spending our lives grieving the Holy Spirit? Grieving our God? Is that our disposition? No, it shouldn't be. We need to fight against it. So he will come and he will convict the world, people of the world, of the sin of unbelief. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will, will come and he will convict the world concerning righteousness. In verse 10, Jesus sets forth the standard of righteousness, what standard did he set forth? Himself. He is the standard of righteousness. 
He points to his ascension, which is about to happen, not, not too far out in the distant future here from this night. He points to his ascension, which provides supreme evidence of his righteousness. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And MacArthur wrote, when the Father highly exalted Jesus, talking about during the ascension, right after the ascension, when the Father highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, Philippians 2.9, he himself testified to Christ's righteousness. And the fact that Jesus was ascended proves that he's righteous, that he's perfectly righteous, because guess what? No one ascends and goes to heaven without perfect righteousness. No one descends from heaven who does not have perfect righteousness. They were never there to begin with. His resurrection proves his perfect righteousness. His glorified body proves his perfect righteousness. His enthronement proves his perfect, flawless righteousness. And he is the standard. People, by nature, think they are good and right in God's eyes. They do. I certainly did before I was saved. I had to get saved to find out how bad I was. Anyone testify to what that's like? Thought I was pretty good before I got saved. Then I got saved and found out, wow, had no idea what I got saved from. That's extraordinary. People by nature think they are good. They think that somehow if God does exist, he because of their good deeds, they somehow think that those good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, right? And see, they would never claim to be religious, but that's religion. And, and, and my good outweighs my bad, and, and, and that way I know God's going he's gonna, to he's gonna grant me access to his heavenly realm if it does in fact exist, and he's going to celebrate me, and he's going to put a crown on me, and it's going to be great. I'm going to be up in heaven. I'm going to be there with grandpap, and it's going to be awesome, man. Why? Because I do a lot of good things. This, this, is, this is the way the world thinks. In a little while, we'll talk about how the world has faulty judgment. And that mentality most certainly represents faulty judgment, doesn't it? That's anti-gospel. That's religion. The Bible does, in fact, teach that no one is good. No one is good. Jesus said this, no one is good but God. Luke 8, 18, 19. The Bible does in fact teach that no one is righteous. No, not one. All have gone astray. Romans 3, 10. I mean, just, 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 just think logically with me for a moment. Think you got enough caffeine in you to do that? The fact that the world not only rejected its only Savior, but killed Him on a cross, proves, proves that it is neither good nor righteous. Jesus was an innocent man. By worldly standards, even just a good man. There was no reason to put Him to death. He wasn't Charles Manson, who, by the way, didn't 
get put to death. He wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer. He wasn't Hitler, a guy that, that we would say, well, now that guy deserves death. If, if, you, if you were able to just, if you read the Gospels, you'll see it. But if you were there and you were just able to see the life of Jesus, you would say to yourself, there's just no reason. Even Pilate, when he was brought before the governor, the governor kept coming out saying, I find no reason to incarcerate this man, to kill this man. He hadn't done anything wrong. The fact that the world insisted on killing him and did kill him proves that it is neither good nor righteous. Now, I think that's some part of the meaning of this text that A.W. Pink kind of says that, well, what's actually playing out here is this idea of coming in and convicting is, is the Holy Spirit is going to be the advocate who comes and represents the case of Christ in a sense. Kind of like, like coming to damn the world for its unrighteousness and sin in what it did against Christ. That's a neat way to look at that passage here. Somebody tells you, well, I'm a pretty good person. You realize you killed Jesus. What do you mean? I'm not a murderer. Yeah, you did. We all did. You're, no, you're not good, and I'm not good. We're bad. We're evil. We're wicked. We're depraved. Every person is responsible for the death of Jesus, the death of an innocent man. Man, we're not good. We're not good. We're not, humanism is a, is, a, is a plague. We're not good. I don't, I don't care what anyone says. We're not good. I, I had to get saved to figure out that I'm not good. And the Bible also teaches expressly that righteousness is required. I've talked about this. Righteousness is required for entry into heaven, Matthew 5.20. And the only way righteousness can be acquired is through good works. Wait a minute. Oh, I was being Roman Catholic for a minute there. I was being religious. No, the only way righteousness can be acquired is through what? Man, seven years of teaching you. (sighs) Belief. Faith. Faith. Not works. Faith. Righteousness is required for entry into heaven, and the only way it can be acquired is through faith, but not just faith, because most people have faith, right? Well, I'm a spiritualist. You know what that means? I'm my own God. Not just faith, but faith in whom? Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone. What does Romans 3.22 say? I love this Verse, you can't get any more simple or plain than this. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the very Holy Spirit who comes to convict the world, wrote this, Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's it. That's it. Your good deeds aren't doing you any good. In fact, I think they'll be used you in God's court used against you in God's court. Righteousness 
is required for entry into heaven. Jesus ascends, it proves that he has it. And the only way that we can ever, ever acquire righteousness is through faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's not by what we do with our hands, or through our religiosity, through our piety. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. According to Jesus' promise here in our text, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will not only convict people of their sinful unbelief, but He will convict them of their unrighteousness and need for the perfect righteousness of Christ alone. See, when I say that, man, it, that reduces down the scope of whom the Holy Spirit is going to actually work to convict. Lastly, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. Judgment. Now, we've already kind of pointed to this, but aren't the world's judgments erroneous and evil? I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? For example, the world put a righteous, innocent man to death 2,000 years ago, and it continues even today to draw wrong conclusions about Jesus Christ, does it not? Can we see the, the fact that the, the world has this inability to make right judgments in, in a plethora of issues? I mean, uh, just think about it. The world's inability to make right judgments can be seen in how it arrives at wrong conclusions about things like gender. <laughs> I'm not a really smart man, but that's pretty plain. Gender is a biological reality, not a social construct. And, and, and some people just got air. Can't figure this out. Because the world lacks judgment, sound judgment. Another thing they can't figure out is, is, is just, just, just basic, just bear with me, just basic sexuality. It's a biological reality. Men are designed a certain way. Women are designed a certain way. Obviously, they complement each other. I don't know how you get that backwards. But it's happening all the time. It's being crammed down our throats. Literally, it's everywhere. It's in everything. It's in the commercials. It's everywhere. Uh, uh, the, the world gets, draws wrong conclusions about marriage, obviously. I mean, that goes right along with sexuality. Marriage, it doesn't seem to understand. And, 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 and one of the big ones for me and, and, and certain people in this room is it, 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 doesn't, it can't seem to make a right judgment about, you know, about life before actual physical birth. You know, I'm talking about babies in the womb which somehow aren't babies in the womb to a great many people. And so if we don't want them, let's just kill them. Let's just get rid of them. The world, the world's judgments are erroneous and evil in every way. 
The world is off. And according to Jesus' promise here in our text, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not only convict people of their sinful unbelief, of their unrighteousness, but he will also convict them from making wrong judgments about Jesus. And I think that's the meaning here when we're talking about judgment, but I think it's, it's a little broader than that, but I think that's the primary meaning. You know, I, I remember so clearly when I first was saved, um, I, I realized I was a sinner. I realized I was unrighteous. Now, I didn't understand it like I do today. It's been 20 years. I should know it better now, right? If not, you better find a new pastor. But I understood I was a sinner. I was grieved. I understood I was unrighteous, that, that all my, my good deeds didn't amount to, it was a hill of beans, nothing. And I understood that I thought like the rest of the world, and I did not possess sound judgment, that I didn't even process basic, basic things properly. For some reason, by God's grace, I've never had an issue with the sexuality thing or gender issue. Heaven forbid, but I certainly thought like the world and made a lot of judgments in accordance with the world and I realized that too when I first got saved. And this is why when somebody gets convicted and actually saved, regenerated and all that, they begin to turn away from the world and its judgments. And they begin to despise its judgments. You know, if you're in Christ, things that you read about in the paper and see that the world is doing can get you pretty fired up. For instance, somebody stages a hate crime. You know, racial tensions that haven't been as high in this country since the 60s, and, 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 and some Hollywood buffoon actor stages a hate crime to bolster his career, and then the charges are dropped. You know what that does to me? Are, are, are we really going there? Yeah, we're really going there. Because if I know if I'd done something that stupid, I'd be locked up. That's the world's judgments. The world's judgments, the world always does, it always does the opposite of what it should do. Now, one woman called America backwards land or banana land. That's what it is, where right is wrong and wrong is right. Why? Because the world does not possess sound judgment. Why doesn't it possess sound judgment? Because it's filled with unregenerate, dead sinners that are ruled and controlled by Satan. But you see, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict people on the sin of unbelief. He's going to convict them on their unrighteousness. He's going to convict them in terms of the world's judgments that they make, that they follow along with those patterns. He's going to help them to see that that's the wrong way to think. In fact, you might want to just call it changing their worldview because Christians have a different worldview than people who aren't Christians, Right? We don't see things the same way. We see babies in the womb differently than the world does. We see sexuality as a blessing and, and beautiful from God. We see gender as something to be celebrated in the two sexes. That's because the Holy Spirit has changed us. But I think that the text goes beyond that kind of of judgment. He will convict people in the world 
for making wrong judgments about Jesus. But it goes beyond that. Jesus literally points to the ruler of the world, the devil, who will suffer defeat at the cross, Hebrews 2.14, who will not escape final judgment, Revelation 20.10. That sucker's getting thrown into the lake of fire. And sadly, unrepentant unbelievers will not escape that final judgment either. Like the devil, they too will be cast into the lake of fire. Just drop down in Revelation 20 and read verse 15. And those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, unbelievers, will be cast into the lake of fire. But I think what's going on here is the Holy Spirit will also convict people on this issue, thus enabling them to see the final result of their unbelief, their unrighteousness, which is what? Judgment. Judgment. So the Holy Spirit will convict them for having illicit, ridiculous, worldly judgment, but it will also point out to them how they're facing judgment. Final judgment. That the ruler who has been defeated and who will be ultimately destroyed in the lake of fire, that is the same fate you will face because of your unbelief and unrighteousness. This is why you need Jesus. Now, we, we don't see it here in the text. We don't, we don't see it here in this text. And what it is that we do not see here in this text is the primary vehicle the Holy Spirit will use to convict the world of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. What is the primary vehicle? It is the preaching of God's Word. That's what He'll use. Is He limited to that? No. But that is the primary vehicle he uses and works through. What did Paul tell the believers in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1.5? Listen to what he said to them. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, we see Jesus' predictions about the Holy Spirit's work in this text come true on Pentecost, on the day the Holy Spirit actually came. They're not completely fulfilled. They're still playing out, but we we see a fulfillment of Jesus' promise right there on that day. During his sermon, Peter pointed out how his audience had rejected and crucified their own Messiah. Acts 2, 15 through 36 And some of the people there that were listening to him passionately preach God's word, they were what? They were cut to the heart. Verse 37a. Or verse 37. Yeah, verse 37a. What does cut to the heart mean? It means to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down, he immediately went to work. And he was attending Peter's preaching. And as Peter's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and holding those people in that audience accountable for their role in the death of their own Savior, the Spirit is there attending that and applying that and cutting them with it, making them realize you are guilty of this. And what did they do? Those who were cut to heart, they began to cry out to the apostles for help. They said, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 37b. 
And in verse 38, Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Basically, what he told him is, Repent of your unbelief, believe in Jesus Christ, prove that you believe by getting baptized. Which was a dangerous thing to do in that day. You didn't want to be known as a Christian, get turned into a human candle a few years later. And 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church, baptized on that day, verse 41. Jesus is saying when he comes, he's going to convict the world in these three ways. We see the Holy Spirit doing that on the day of Pentecost, just a handful of days after Jesus predicts this will happen. We also see a clear example of the Spirit's convicting work a little later in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer and his household. Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi, and you know they were called rioters because people got so upset and angry. You talk, you talk about being convicted and then responding with hardness of heart and riots. This is what happened in Philippi. People didn't want to hear that gospel. Don't be telling me I'm not a good person. They got thrown into jail for doing this, but a mighty earthquake shook open the cell doors and unfastened all the leg irons from the floor or from the wall, wherever they were attached. All the prisoners were kind of meandering around in there after the earthquake. And the jailer who was outside of that inner cell assumed that all his prisoners had gotten loose and escaped because, hey, if the doors are open and the bonds are broken, they're peace out. He thought Paul and Silas and everyone else was gone. And so he decided to take his own life. Why? To avoid public humiliation and execution. Why? Because under Roman law, if your prisoners escaped, you died. And you died a bloody, nasty death in front of everyone in your town. Look what this moron did. He let everyone go at the jail. Can you believe that? That's why your purse got stolen, Sally. Kill him. Man, he, he literally, before he could fall on his own sword, Paul calls out to him in a loud voice and says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Verse 28. <laughs> and the jailer's like, ah, what, what? About to kill himself. So he has the torches lit, and he rushes in to see if his prisoners were indeed present, and they were. He no longer had a reason to fear for his life, but in verses 29 to 30, it says, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, dot, 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 and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In that very moment, the Holy Spirit convicted the jailer of his sin, of his need for salvation, and Paul responded, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have your household do that as well. Verse 31, the jailer then brought Paul and Silas to his house so they could preach the gospel to his whole family, his whole household. And the Holy Spirit convicted his entire household because the end of verse 33 says, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The fact that they all got baptized shows that they all repented and believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those are just two examples from Acts how what Jesus is predicting is fulfilled or truthful and come to pass. 
And history is replete with examples of the Holy Spirit's convicting work in the lives of people. Many, if not all in this room, are living proof of the Holy Spirit's convicting work. How do you suppose we got saved? Well, I, I tell you what, man, I got a little goose bump and I prayed a prayer and I've been good ever since. <laughs> go to church? No, I don't go to church too much, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma and we don't do that there. I don't know, I don't know where that example came from, but <laughs> it just pops into the mind. Later I say, why, Lord? He says, because you keep running your lips. How do you suppose we got saved? And Tom, I just realized, is probably from Oklahoma, so I'm about to get strangled after the service. Help me, Jesus. His biceps are bigger than my abdomen. Well, not really, but... <laughs> no. I'll see, Daryl. Okay, got it. How, how, how did we get saved? How did we get saved? The Holy Spirit regenerated us, thus resulting in conviction and faith and repentance, etc., etc. And the Holy Spirit continues to convict those of us who are in Christ, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He does. That's a gift of grace. Well, the good news is the Holy Spirit is still convicting lost sinners of their sinful unbelief, their unrighteousness, their faulty judgment, their impending judgment, and need for salvation in Jesus Christ alone. He's still in the business. He's still doing it. As Christians, it's our job to pray that the Holy Spirit attends our work and cuts to the heart, convicts our listeners. As we minister to them, we're, we're praying that Man, that He would do that. It's our job to provide a vehicle for the Holy Spirit to do His supernatural work. The preaching and gossiping of the, the very Word of God. One of my favorite passages says, I, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's what we do. We give people the whole Word. Now, that doesn't mean the first time you sit down with somebody, you try to unpack the entire Bible for them. Maybe you try to do that, whatever. Good luck. But what we do is we listen and we try to give them the word in response to what they're saying. We try to meet them where they're at with the very word of God. And even prior to that meeting, we're praying that the Holy Spirit would attend that meeting and that he would attend the proclamation of the word and that he would cut, to the, cut their hearts, cut to their hearts. It's our job to pray for the Holy Spirit to attend our work. It's our job to provide the vehicle, the word of God. And lastly, it's our job to point our listeners. It's our job to point our listeners to their only solution and hope, to their only righteousness. Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. Closing. Are you being convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning? Has He made you aware of, of your sinful unbelief, your unrighteousness, your 
faulty judgment, your impending judgment, your need for salvation in Christ alone? Is, is the Holy Spirit performing that work in you? And be like the people on Pentecost. Be, be like the Philippian jailer in his household. Re- repent of your unbelief and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Believe that he lived for your righteousness, that he died to pay for your sins, was buried to settle your account with God, that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, he crushed his head, victorious over death, he conquered it, victorious over hell. Believe that he did that for you. If you do that, you will be saved. You will be saved. And as a a new Christian, you can celebrate communion with us in just a few moments. And guess what else you can do? You can get baptized here at RHC on Easter. That's just three weeks away. You can stand before your new brothers and sisters here in the Lord and, and, and show them that you believe, that show them that you belong to Christ and that you're going to follow him the rest of your life. You can do that. What a blessed opportunity for you to do that. If you're interested in in hearing more or prayer, encouragement, uh, maybe even in in getting baptized, and just come see me after the service or any one of the elders, we all come forward at the end make ourselves available to you. I'd love to meet with you.